chapter 1. James chapter 1. We had the class turn to James 1, but for a different purpose than the one that we're pursuing tonight. I want to share a testimony with you, if I could, please. And um, this really touched me. We, um, Wednesday nights in the churches that I grew up in, you know, were about different things. Of course, for me, worshiping Father and us drawing close to Him and close to one another and then allowing Him to speak to us by the Holy Spirit from His Word is really some of the most important things we could ever do. Sometimes churches do business meetings on Wednesday night, and we've never been big on that, not because we don't have business and aren't doing it. It's just we feel like it's more important than to talk about the things of God. But the Lord blessed us, for those of you who may not know this, the Lord blessed us with the property here that faces Brook Lane and the one across the street. When I say us, I mean it's this family of faith. You know, sometimes people say, you know, Pastor Mark, can I use your fellowship hall? So, I mean, it's, it's as much your fellowship hall as it is mine. This is the Lord's house, right? And, and um, so when we started, you know, we had some really good tenants that, that paid well, and it was a blessing. We were able to resurface the parking lot and do some things here around the church. And then it's like kind of one by one those tenants moved out, and some of the buildings said empty. We, of course, blessed our brothers in the church, met over here for a while, and for the most part, we... We help finance that for them, and God's blessing us for seed sown. But, um, that was one of the things that Pam and I really started focusing our faith and others in on this year was, you know, for some good tenants, and man, the Lord's just blessed us. We're here. We have a gentleman that the Lord brought into my life. I've been talking with him now for months, and, and um, the last open spot we have that's finished um, it's a new concept. It's, it's been wildly popular in other places, but it's basically called an event sale. And this man builds furniture and, and things of this nature, and he, he, they basically do it for, a, like a, I think it's like a Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And so, um, so anyway, we signed a lease with him today. And, and um, so he says, if you got a minute, I'd like to ask you a few questions. And he, he asked me some questions. He told me about when he got born again, the date and everything, and he said, I hear people say things that, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And, of course, there's a current in the body of Christ today uh, pertaining to salvation where, you know, people believe that it's really hard to get saved. And I just disagree with that altogether. Jesus made it easy for us to get saved. And so, Amen. call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. I mean, all the thief on the cross said is, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Jesus said, you'll be there with me today, sir. I mean, you, 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 you're heading that way right now. And... Um, so he had some questions about that. Then I could tell he was kind of hesitant to tell me this story from his life, you know, because again, I'm not sure. I know he's a believer, but I don't know what he believes as far as beyond Jesus as Lord and Savior, you know. And um, he told me about some of the preachers that he loves to listen to, and you know, I'm, Amen. They're good guys, you know, but not necessarily ones that a lot of us would listen to. Let's just say it that way. And so I could tell he was kind of hesitant to tell me this story, and he said, I just, I just feel like I need to tell you this. And I said, you know, class is fixing to start, but they'll wait, you know. So He said, when I was a kid, I was diagnosed with a really rare blood disease. He said, and one of the symptoms of this blood disease is that it caused warts to come up on my body. 
you said, on my arms and legs, and at first we would go and they would burn them off, but it's like two days later it would be right back. And he said, I was bullied a lot in school. I, you know, obviously it's, I'd be hard for an adult, but, you know, a kid going through, you know, teenage years. And he said that um, his dad heard about a guy named Kenneth Copeland who was having a revival service in Birmingham. He said he came home from school one day and his dad told him, he said, we're going to a revival service tonight with Kenneth Copeland. I could tell he was kind of looking at my face to see how I was going to respond. I'm like, tell me more, right? So he said, I went to this revival service. He said, I was 13 years old. He said, I really didn't, you know, all that was going on. He said, the only thing I remember is at the end of it, he told me that, you know, basically the Lord Jesus Christ wanted to heal me and uh, heal anybody that was sick if you were sick or stand up. And if he said, I remember him saying, if you can't stand up, just be seated. He said, if, if you can't raise your arms, but if you can, lift your arms up to heaven. You know, he was telling me the whole instructions. He said, then I believed and he prayed and he said, we went home that night. He said, to be honest with you, I didn't really think a whole lot more about it the next morning. You know where we're going with this, right? He said the next morning he was, he was waking up and he thought he remembered prayer last night. No warts on his right arm. No warts on his left arm. Over a hundred warts disappeared that night during his sleep. And I'm like, in case you're wondering, I was with Brother Copeland first of this year at his minister's conference, you know. And he doesn't know a lot about him. I mean, he, he didn't know a lot about Brother Copeland. And I'm like, dude, all those guys you told me about, they're good. But this man's a prophet. So anyway, Brother Jerry, he took The Blessing, uh, that book, home with him. I gave him my copy of The Blessing back at Brother Copeland. So anyway, uh, just and I told him, I said, we, we pray over the businesses that occupy these church home properties and because we want them to be blessed so that we can be blessed if it's not a blessing for us if they're not being blessed right that's the way the kingdom works amen all right james chapter one and verse number two praise god i know i took some sermon time to share that with you but i just um you know how you meet somebody and you just there's a connection there was a connection between my heart and that man's heart when we first spoke on the telephone. And um, he was initially going to take this end property down here that TNT Graphics wound up moving into. But he couldn't commit to it long term. And he said, I understand, you know. So, man, he's like getting all these plans together. And then we get a long-term five-year, five-year renewal, 10-year lease on so I had to call him. I'm like, man, yeah, I feel so bad to call him. And he's like, oh, man, I'm happy for the church. I understand. He says, no problem. You know, I'm like, man, what a heart, what an attitude, you know. So, so anyway, we just believe in good things for, for him. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. We've pointed this out many times. The word trial, the word test, is the same word in the Greek, and you can also add to that word temptation, and he's going to use that word later in this chapter. A test, a trial, a temptation. Now, if you understand how deception works, deception, of course, by definition, is when someone 
um, causes you to believe something to be true that's not true. They deceived you. You believe something that they said, you believe something that they promised, whatever. You know, so it wasn't true, you believed it to be true, therefore you've been deceived. There are also other ways that, that con artists or people who deceive people, other people, you know, operate. Um, back when, you know, my Chick-fil-A days, um, you would from time to time have a person who would come and they would try to deceive a, uh, someone operating a cash register by trying to change money. And so like, give me change for 20. And then when you start to hand them two tens, they will say, no, no, could I get two fives and a 10? And, you know, they walk in where the person puts the money. And so basically what a quick change artist is what they would be referred to, where they're trying to obviously get the cashier focused on one thing so that they can take or steal money from them. You follow what I'm saying? Okay. And that's how the enemy works. I mean, the enemy, Satan is at the heart of all deception. I mean, you know, I mean, he's, he's behind all of that, just like he's behind all terror. He's the original terrorist. And so when we talk about deception, what the enemy, of course, tries to do is to get you and me focused on things, believing that those are the things that are important, those are the things that, that matter, those are the things that we need to circle the wagons around, when it's not those things at all, it's something entirely different. And so when it comes to test trials and temptations, this is an area where I think Satan has really deceived a lot of people in the sense that we've not really recognized and understood what, what it is that he's after. So I think sometimes we think like when the devil's tempting us that he's trying to get us to sin. You know, he's just, he's, he's tempting us because he wants us to sin and sin is bad and, and, and so he's going to try to get you to sin. Well, yes and no. Yes and no. So like when some test of your faith uh, or some trial that you seem to be going through, right? It's very easy for us to, to get caught up in how the things look, seem, and feel. It's very easy for us to, to shift our focus onto those things and think that that's what it's about, that's what we need to focus on. You know, how many times have I been trying to work with someone dealing with a really serious problem in their life and they say it with tremendous sincerity, you know, I've got to do what's best for me. I mean, I've heard people say it with such passion, you'd think they're quoting a Bible verse. And on one hand, I do understand what somebody means when they say that. But it's a classic example of how the enemy deceives people. Because if we think doing what's best for me is focusing on me, then we have done the very thing that the devil wants us to do and the one thing that will continue the downward slide in your life. You, you can't focus on yourself. That It'll never work that way. When we turn inward, right, we separate ourselves from the one who's there to help us. But again, it's a classic you know, example of how the enemy is able to just gently move us over into focusing on the things that we think are, you know, absolutely have to be focused on, dealt with, handled, given attention to, 
you know, in this moment. The one thing he loves to do to us, and I'm just exposing him tonight, we're not ignorant of his devices, amen, is he loves to get us in survival mode. He loves to manipulate our thoughts and thinking, you know, so deeply into a situation that we enter into a mode of operation that I call survival mode. So when you're in survival mode, you're only thinking about that moment. You're not even considering the consequences of your choices and actions in that moment because in your mind, if you don't do this now, you're not going to survive to experience any negative consequences that would happen in the future. Are you following what I'm saying? So anytime that the enemy can manipulate us into survival mode thinking, into, you know, but what ifing, you know, worry, stress, anxiety weighing on us, um, he has us in a very vulnerable position. Um, and so again, it's, it's deceptive. And, and, the, and the deception of, let's just use worry as an example. You know, when, when we worry about our finances, when we worry about our children, when we, you know, set our hearts and minds upon these things, the perception that the enemy tries to create is that somehow our worry or however we want to call it, concern, our um, stress, anxiety, what have you, over these things, the, he's, he tries to craft this in such a way as to where it seems like our worry is helping. You know, that, man, if we don't worry about this, then something bad might happen. Well, what we don't realize is that our fear actually has the power to create something and cause it to happen that would have never happened in the first place. So it's not just that your worry um, isn't, hel- isn't you know, it's not your worry isn't helping, but it's actually harming. It's harming you. If nothing else, it's harming you. But we can feel so spiritual in those moments. I mean, we can, we can spiritualize our own dysfunction. You've heard me say that before, right? In the sense that we think we're being godly. We think we're being all spiritual when, when we're not. But yet that's the, that's the way the devil has made it look, seem, and feel in our lives. And so as long as I've taught on these things, and it's been a long time, it's like this run, so to speak, when the Lord brought us back to this end of last year, is that he brought us back to this subject of test trials and temptations to really, really expose, you know, if, if it's not the bottom layer, it's, it's right there, okay, of what Satan's real focus is in all of this. And it comes down to the word. He's trying to steal the word from you. Because the word of God combined with the faith that's already in your heart is a very, very serious threat to him and to his kingdom. When you hear the word of God and it awakens, arouses the faith that God gave you in your heart, if he can't stop you from setting your thoughts on that word, following those thoughts with a confession, speaking that word out of your mouth, and then following through with an action related to that word, then he can't stop you. He can't, all of the demons in hell, they cannot stop you. That's how powerful the word of God is 
activated um, you know, into your life through faith. And so even this passage, and I know we've pointed this out before, but even this passage, how many times over the years did I read this passage and think that I was the one being tempted or that I was the one being tested or I was the, are you following what I'm saying? It's not about you. Notice it's about faith. It's the testing of your faith. It's the, it's the pressure that the enemy tries to apply to your faith. Because what happens is, if he can't steal the word from you, remember this from Matthew 13, if he can't steal the word from you, then he's going to try to put pressure on you and get you to release the word. So you hear it, faith is awakened, you line your thoughts, you begin to speak, you begin to act. The enemy is going to try to get you to step back. And he does that by bringing the pressure. And that pressure is also known as tests, trials, and temptations. But Matthew 13 tells us that it's all because of the word. He is trying to steal the word from you. He is trying to dislodge the word from you. He is trying to choke the word out in your life so it no longer produces what God intended for it to produce in your life. Now, the temptations then that we deal with are far more than the devil trying to see if he can get us to sin. Sin by its very nature, is a violation of God's Word. Now, I know some of this may sound basic tonight, and um, I don't mind preaching, but I just feel a different flow tonight. So if I could just talk to you for a few more minutes. Sin by its very nature is a violation of God's Word. What I'm asking you to do tonight is to open your heart to the Holy Spirit and allow Him to give you heaven's perspective on the subject of sin. Because a lot of us grew up in church and we grew up in maybe more religious-minded types of churches, we were told so much about what we should not do and what God was going to do to us or let happen to us if we did it. And because of that, our understanding of these things has been forged in a negative fire. Now, obviously, I'm not trying to paint a positive picture of sin. Don't misunderstand me, all right? But again, the deceiver, the enemy, our enemy, he has tried your whole life to put the Word of God in a negative context to you. I'm going to say that again. Your enemy has tried your whole life to put God's Word in a negative context. In other words, he's wanted you to think of this book as, I know this may sound like a strong word, as an enemy, as a judge, as a book that condemns you because it tells you what you shouldn't do and you've done it. 
and you feel bad for doing it, but you also want to do the bad even more. And this book is like something that's standing there, this big negative in your life. And, and people have beaten you up with this book, and they've waved it in your face, and they've thumped it, and all this other stuff. And so the devil, again, using other people and using uh, people who do not understand the Bible and the things that they say from it, the devil has tried your whole life to get you to look at God's Word from a negative perspective, in, from a negative light, that it's a book of restriction, that, that it's a prison. Youth pastor I had growing up, I've, I've quoted him this, I don't know how many hundred times I've said this, Buddy Malloy. He said, the Word of God is not a prison to wall you in, it's a fortress to protect you in this life. It's a fortress, it's not a prison. It's a strong tower. And nothing in this created realm is more powerful than God's word. Everything that God created is subject to his words that created it. But the enemy has tried so hard to make the Bible confusing and frustrating. And because again, you did not wake up in a neutral world this morning. If you were in a neutral world, it would be just as easy to eat Brussels sprouts as it is to eat cream-filled donuts. If you were in a neutral world, it would be just as easy to save money as it is to spend money. If you were in a neutral world, it would be just as easy to pray and read your Bible as it is to eat M&Ms and watch TV. You did not wake up in a neutral world. There is an enemy who is opposed to you. There is an enemy who brings resistance against you. And all of that resist. this is, the Word of God is ground zero for the resistance. The more He can keep you from the Word, the more He can keep you defeated. The more He can keep you from hearing, aligning your thoughts, words, and actions with the Word, the more He can continue to negatively impact and manipulate your life. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. You say that and what else, Pastor Mark? That. That. I'm getting way ahead of myself, but it's just burning in me right now. I've got to say it. See, even when we tried to understand the temptations of Jesus, and Jesus quoted the word to defend himself against the devil. No, no, see, we don't understand. Jesus quoted the word because the battle was for the word. That's what the devil was trying to steal from him. See, how could he steal the word from the word? By redirecting his thoughts away from the word of God on to how things look, seemed, and feel. Why do you think the devil kept saying, look at this, how about that? Boy, those breads look like, those rocks look like two fresh loaves of bread to me. How about you, Jesus? Trying to divert his attention, trying to get his thoughts redirected away from the word of God. Every test, trial, and temptation in your life, the word of God, this book right here, it's ground zero. See, the devil makes you think about it's your reputation, it's about your self-esteem, it's about this and that and the other and blah, blah, blah. No, 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 it's about the word. Don't be hoodwinked. Don't be deceived. The thing that we need to grab hold of and not turn loose of, no matter what, is the word. The word. Sin by its very nature is a violation of God's word. Now, Romans tells us 
that whatever is not of faith is sin. I used to like to pretend that verse wasn't in the Bible because in my religiously minded days, I thought my righteousness depended upon my behavior and me not sinning. And so as far as not killing anybody or murdering, you know, lying, that sort of thing, you know, I, I could do pretty good at some of that. But then you come to a verse like this, you're like, oh man, I'm sunk. I mean, I'd never live up to that, right? This verse is not here to condemn you. It's here to instruct you. It's here to awaken you. It's here, it's here to help you understand life as it was meant to be lived. Now, the Holy Spirit said something to me a few weeks ago, and it actually came out in a sermon. It wasn't in my notes, but in meditating on it later, it really just began to strike home. And he led me to some other things. And so let's follow this line of thought, train of thought, if you will, from, I believe, the Holy Spirit. Whatever is not of faith is sin. And so if that's the case, then whatever is sin is not of faith. In other words, if... If we are not in faith, then we're in sin. But what is faith? Faith is aligning your thoughts, words, and actions with the Word of God. So if we're not doing that, we're taking steps on a pathway to an inferior life. What does sin mean by definition? Am I boring you? What does sin mean by definition? To miss the full scope and true end of one's life. See, we look at it as an episode, an event, something we did we shouldn't have done. No, no, no. The bigger picture of sin from Father's perspective is to miss the full scope and true end of your life. So if you take a step outside of what God says, instructs for you to do, you've just committed a sin, meaning what? You've taken a step on a pathway towards an inferior life. Now, again, if I'm treating you like children, I don't mean to. But if I'm treating you like a child, then the Holy Spirit treated me like one today as well. But these are the things that I really feel like he said to me. Very simple, but let's follow it. So whatever's not of faith is sin. Whatever is sin then can't be of faith. You can't be in sin and in faith at the same time. All right? So who determines what is right and what is wrong? Well, this is not a trick question. Some people think they do. Some people think the government does. Some people think popular opinion determines these things. But come on, let's get real. Who determines what's right and wrong? It's not a trick question. God determines that. Come on now, I got the right bunch tonight? God determines that. He's the one who says, this is what's right, this is what's wrong. And when God says this is right and that is wrong, He's not arbitrarily coming up with these things. It's not like he's, he's in a bad mood today, so fornication's wrong. You follow what I'm saying here? He doesn't just randomly say, okay, that, that, that's right. Wrong, 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 right, right. No, see, he, that's not how this works. God determines what is right and what is wrong because right leads to good and wrong leads to bad. 
He does not arbitrarily make these decisions, but he declares something that's right according to his wisdom, and he declares something that is wrong according to his wisdom. Yes? The sooner you and I come to the conclusion that every word he's ever spoken has been with our best interest, your best interest in mind, the further along we're going to be. Everything he said about your money is because he's trying to get you wealthy. Everything he said about your children, he said because he's wanting to see them grow up and fulfill their potential. Everything he said about your marriage, he's not said because he's trying to put women down and make women barefoot and pregnant and all these things. No, no. Everything he said about your marriage, he said because he wants you to enjoy a marriage beyond your wildest imaginations. Everything he's ever told you to, to, to stay away from. It's because he knows that those things are enticing and appealing to your flesh, but they are also very, very dangerous and can be very, very destructive. God created sex. I'm not trying to embarrass you tonight. God created sex. He could, cre- he could have created a method of reproduction that had no pleasure with it. But he created sex. He created it for reproduction. He created it for pleasure between a husband and a wife. And then he gave us a whole lot of instructions for its use. Because you go getting crazy with something God meant to be good, and it's going to hurt you, and it's going to hurt you, and a lot of other people really bad. So when he tells you not to have sex outside of marriage, he's not trying to cramp your style or make you boring or keep something good from you. He's trying to keep you from killing yourself. So how does God communicate to us what is right and what is wrong? How does he communicate to you and me what is good and what is bad? What leads to life and what leads to death? How does God communicate to us his ways to live the life he created us to live? Again, this is not a trick question. He has spoken to us and continues to speak to us. In other words, by his word. Now, I'm going to land this plane here in just a second. But this is really, really, really important, okay? It's kind of like at the wedding feast where they said they, they usually serve the best wine first, and then after people have kind of, you know, wore down, then they serve the inferior stuff. So, amen. I know you may be a little tired this end of a lot of our days, okay, but let's, let's get this. God has told us what not to do. Amen? And he has also told us what to do. We only tend to think of sin as doing what he told us not to do, but it is just as much a sin when we do not do what he told us to do. Now see, if you were anything like me when I was younger, you're hearing bad news right now. Right? I mean, you know, if you don't understand that you're powerless to make yourself right and keep yourself right before God in the eyes of God, then you're probably getting real uncomfortable right now and thinking about, you know, what you're going to do once you get out of here in a few minutes. 
The only way you'll ever be mature enough to handle this is to understand that your righteousness is not based upon what you do for God, but what God's done for you. And that he has stated these things to a church who has already been made right before him by the blood of Jesus, not because he's trying to condemn them or make them feel lousy about themselves, but because he's trying to help us understand sin from his perspective and how these things ultimately affect our lives and our fruitfulness. I wanted to put this in a little different no, basically saying the same thing, but I'm saying it a little different way, okay? Is it any less a problem for a child to not do what his father asks than it is for him to do what his father forbids? You know what I'm saying? If, if my dad says, you know, I'm growing up, you know, kid tells me and Matt, don't get on the roof. Well, if I get on the roof, I've disobeyed him, right? How about if he says to me, take out the trash? If I don't take out the trash, I've also broken his word. I've, 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 I've violated his word. Is it any less a problem for a child to not do what his father asks than it is for him to do what his father forbids? Now, where are we going with this? Because, see, we have this we have this blind spot. And the blind spot is, as long as we don't do what God told us not to do, we're all right. That's that whole bait and switch thing. In other words, that's what the devil wants you to think about when you think of the word. The Ten Commandments. And don't you dare break one. How many people in our world think, I'm pretty good because I don't break those commandments? Man, God did not create you to not do a list of things. Are you understand what I'm saying? It's like, well, I'm going to create this elaborate man in my image and just beneath me so that I can tell him what not to do all of his days. No. He created you to live a certain way. So when God forbids you to do something, it's because he's trying to help you. And when he asks you to do something, it's because he's trying to help you. James 4.17 says it this way, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does, it, does not do it, to him it's sin. So we could say it this way, sin is failing to obey God's word. But if we took that word obey out, because I think, I don't have a problem with the word obey, but it, it I think ties in with that old line of thinking, toe the line or else. How about if we take obey out and we put instead the word follow? Sin is failing to follow God's word. How about sin is failing to do God's word? Here's one. How about sin is failing to experience God's word? And the last one. Sin is failing to benefit from God's word. See how that puts it? Am I the only one? Does that not put it in a little different context than thou shalt obey? That's not his heart. That's not his attitude towards you. Amen. Stand with me tonight.
Again, what is sin? Sin is any act that causes you to fall short of God's highest and best for your life. Sin is any act that causes you to miss the full scope and the true end. In other words, what you're here for, what God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit want to do in and through your life. Amen. I'm asking you tonight, and you know, what it may be for one could be something entirely different for another person. Maybe it's something pertaining to your family. Maybe it's something pertaining to your finances. Maybe it's something pertaining to, you know, some personal issue, some legal issue, some marital issue. But I'm, I'm asking you tonight to start fresh and begin with this question, what, what does the word say about this? Maybe it's some physical issue, some health problem. Okay, what does the word, what does the word say about this? And not from this perspective of God's just trying to catch you in a mistake so he can punish you. No, no, no. What has my loving Heavenly Father already put in place concerning this issue in my life for me to set my mind upon, to set my words upon, and to set my actions upon. It's the simplicity. It's the simplicity of faith. But the Word of God, the Word of God will change your life forever. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for this time together this evening. We thank you for your love. Thank you, Father, that we hear your voice tonight. Father, your ways are higher than our ways because your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And Father, we tonight just remind ourselves that you decide what's right and what's wrong, not us. Our lives are not our own to do with as we please. Father, you decide how we should handle our money how we should handle our marriages, how we should raise our children. Not the world, not the government, not our neighbors. You, des you decide that, Father, and we're going to follow your wisdom. Lord, we sang it tonight, and we'll, I'm sure we'll sing it again before long, but the truth of the matter is, Father, you're perfect in all your ways. We're not yet. We're, we're learning your ways so we can be better and, and better and more and more uh, complete in ours. But as we make your ways our ways, Father, So, Lord, help us again. Take the one thing, that wall that we keep hitting. What does your word have to say about it? Allow faith, Lord, to rise up within us. And we thank you for progress. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. We love you all. Have a great rest of your week. Look forward to seeing you on Sunday. Seniors,